Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, sign up for our free newsletter, our five best stories each week, straight into your inbox. And by the way, send the link to friends. And today, we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do uh, correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And, and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986, United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. A rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's take bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong. They're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months, and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here, and our friends in L.A. think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here Take they go. Away, lift off. Amazing. And the fan is up, and there they go, John. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records. 
records, the Cleveland home of the home of the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. The All-American City. Now, typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the Balloon Fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of Northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered, apparently from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're at, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and... It's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release, with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down, and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up, and uh, the balloons took the watch, and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say, if anybody finds Mary Allen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job, as always, on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And that's from sports to the arts, from business to history, and your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll produce them up and play them right back at you. They're some of our very best. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll produce them and put them up on the air. And now it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from some of the best leaders in America, from military leaders to business leaders, coaches, and community and faith leaders in town across this country. And today we hear from Briggs Sorber, one of the original two men from Two Men and a Truck, and his family's business has grown to 7,600 employees and 3,000 trucks and 346 franchises. And Brig travels around the country speaking to the employees of their franchisees to continually cultivate their culture and also to share with them his personal advice about life that he's often learned, well, the hard way. Here's Brig with what he tells them. I'm a geography major from Northern Michigan University. Uh, my goal was urban planning and land use regulation. And I'll talk with the movers because I love doing that. I'll travel around to the different franchises and they shut the trucks down for Marine and get to talk to them. And I tell them, you know, I never took a business class. I took urban planning and land use regulation. That was what my degree was in. And they're like, and I'll ask them, do you, any of you know what that is? And they're like, no, and I, went, I don't either. But I got the degree and I never used it. But the point I tell them that is that I ask them, how many of you guys have gone to college or going to college? It actually is surprising. Almost a third of them have gone or graduated. But I tell the rest of them, this is your college. You know, this is it. And I ask them, why do you go to college? Why do you go to college? And they're like, to make more money. I went, how? How do you make more money by going to college? Well, you, you, know, you learn a trade, and then you go out there and make it happen. I went, all right. Well, this is your college. This is Stickman University, baby. This is it. And I said, so you're going to learn how to manage people, time, and money. And uh, you're going to move forward if you want to, because you have to make it happen. Nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you a damn thing. I tell them that, and I tell them I love them. I tell you some things. I tell them that 68% of our managers in our system started out on the trucks or on the phones. 68%. 42% of our franchisees started out on the trucks or the phones. 42%. Several of them do not have college educations. And several of them are millionaires. Several of them have four-year degree graduates that work for them. You want to know why? Because they treated this like their college. They learned how to relate to customers, how to take care of customers. They learned how to take care and motivate movers and drivers like themselves. Everyone learned something here. I don't care if you have a four-year degree. You come in and you're a franchisee with a four-year degree, you're still going to get your teeth kicked in somewhere. So. I'm looking at you guys, and I'll ask them, you know, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if it was your goal in life to be a mover. It's like, nobody nobody here wanted to be a mover, and you're all sitting here. I go, how sad, you know? How many of you, back when you were kids playing in the yard, you know, cowboys and Indians, cops, robbers, whatever, how many of you raised your hand and went, damn it, it's my turn to be the mover? Nobody. I said, but, you know, that's what careers start out. With Carhartts and Boots, I mean, this is, this is where they start. Where you go from here is totally up to you. 
I was talking with my president four or five years ago. I said, I wonder what our movers and drivers are doing that were with us 10, 15 years ago. I said, get a hold of the marketing department, have them get on social media and, and dig some of these people up. I want to know what they're doing. Tim Hudson, who was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, was a mover. We had a Harlem Globetrotter that was a mover. We had a rocket scientist from NASA that was a mover. And countless cops, doctors, teachers. And so we sent out a film crew to some of these. Can you just tell us, when you start out as a mover, how, did you gain anything from your career from just moving furniture? It's like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and they would tell us what they learned about the you know, importance of showing up and being ready and being prepared. And Tim Hudson said, try throwing curveballs after you've been moving furniture all day long. It toughened me up, you know. And uh, so we tell these guys, what are you going to do with, with what you learn here? I hope you stay here. But if you don't, I mean, we have over 500 online classes for our frontline people to take and certifications they can take for free. Start building up those certifications. We have an online resume building kit to show you how to build a resume. If you don't stay here, I want you to be better because of us. But I hope you stay here. But it's up to you because nobody owes you a damn thing. And I tell them, I go, this is tough. I know some of us in this room have it really tough. But your parents don't owe you a damn thing. Your brother, sister, your grandma, your grandpa, nothing. Your teachers, your old coaches, they owe you nothing. State, federal, local government don't owe you a damn thing. Two men in a truck doesn't owe you anything. God owes you nothing. If you feel that somebody owes you something and you didn't get it, what are you now? Oh, you're a victim. You know, you're a victim of what somebody else did to you, you know? And then you're just so angry and frustrated because that person screwed up your life. Get on with it. I mean, I hate to sound like this, but I don't care. I care about what happens to you now. I can't do anything about what happened to you in the past. But you have to take these things here. I said, if you compare to the rest of the world, if you woke up this morning with a roof over your head, and I'm staring at you guys right now, there's nobody starving to death here. As a matter of fact, there's some of you that are eating too much, all right? If you got a flush toilet and running water, if you have somebody that you love or somebody loves you, guess what? You got it better than 95% of the people in the world. You have it better than almost everybody in the world. There are people literally dying to get into this country just to grab your scraps. And I got some of you guys sitting here saying, woe is me. I said, you guys better get over it. I just want to wake them up. And um, I talked to man, a franchise in Philadelphia. And some of these movers were, they came up to me afterwards and one of them said, I don't know how to speak to you. I said, well, I speak English, so what, what do you got? <laughs> he goes, oh my God, I needed to hear that. And I go, you get it, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I just, he goes, it's freedom, isn't it? Nobody can hold you back. He goes, no. I said, isn't it funny how we can put ourselves, we feel like, in, like we're in prison, we're stuck in this job, we're stuck in this place. And we're, we're rattling the cage, and we're mad at everybody because we want out. Ever try just pushing on the bars and opening the door and walking out of it? Because you have that choice. You can do that. He goes, God, I love that. I went, yeah. And I'll tell the guys, I'll say, there's, I can put 
I don't know any of you guys, but you've landed three buckets I can put you in. I said, the first bucket, you're using this job. You're using it to pay for your education. Maybe you're using it to save money to move somewhere else. You're using it to make yourself better. I said, that's awesome, man. That's the bucket you want to be in. Let us know how you can use us. And I, I, we will show you. Then there's a second bucket. Most of you fall in this bucket. It's like, how the hell did I end up here? I mean, here I am, 28, 29 years old, and I'm a mover of furniture. This sucks. And I said, that's fine. I'll get to you later. I said, then there's the third bucket. And the third bucket is you don't give a shit. You don't care. You're not even listening to me now. And I'll, t I'll tell you, every time I say that, somebody goes, <laughs> they'll look at me. But it's like, no, you're not even listening to me now. You're not hurting my feelings because I've been around you for my whole life. I've been around all of you my whole life. So I don't take this personally. But let me tell you what will happen to you. You will take one lateral move from job to job to job. This one is just one of the lateral moves that you've already had. And I've known this because I've been doing this job longer than most of you have been alive. Okay, so I know this. But it's sad to me, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I said, you will move from this job to the next one, not to make you better, because it looks like it's easier money or you don't have to work as hard. You will give me a few years before or after, but in your mid to upper 30s, you're going to wake up and you're going to find out that you don't have the same friends you used to have. Uh, you have family members that you don't even hang out with anymore. It's going to dawn on you that you are going to not have anything for the rest of your life. And that is the saddest part to me. And the only person that you can blame is yourself. Look in the mirror, not out the window at your excuses. And remember that. And only by the grace of God will you ever get an opportunity to pull yourselves out of that hellhole and make something of yourself. I said, that's what's going to happen. And the sad part is you've got more opportunity than I'd say 95% of the world to make something happen for yourself. And you know what? You don't need a college education for it. Work hard learn and humble yourself and find out what happens and what a talk and we'll continue our on leadership segment with Brig Sauber one of the two men in two men in a truck his story his leadership talk here on our American stories This is Our American Stories, and we continue Briggs Sorber's remarkable talk about, well, life, about work, about commitment, and in the end, about so much more. Let's continue with Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. They're hanging around the wrong people. Man, I rip on my movers for that. I said, our friends, or most of our friends, are only there for the season of our lives. And as we move and evolve, our friends change. And I've got a couple that I've had since I was younger, but those are relationships where my friends are moving in the same positive direction I am, and we're learning and we're giving to those relationships. But there's people that you know we shouldn't hang out with. You know, you're smiling. you got a couple of them right now, don't you? <laughs> so they're there for a season, but after a while, I tell the movers the same thing. You're the average of your five closest friends that you hang out with. I stole that from somewhere, and I, I thought about it, and it's right. Every now and then, you've got to take a look at it. You've got some friends. I'm not talking about a friend that has a 
that's down and you're helping them out. That's different. But you got one that's down all the time. They suck your will to live. You end up in places you shouldn't be or, or you're having conversations that aren't right. I tell these movers, told my kids the same thing. If I'm not hanging out with people that don't honor marriage, uh, they don't honor God, or they're pulling me from those things and making me better, they're gone. Uh, I, don't, I don't value that. I, I've got friends now that I didn't have three or four years ago. That's that evolution. You know, you're never quite there, right? You're always growing and changing. And I tell the movers, and I told my kids the same thing. You have to be the same way. You are built and made in God's image. You are a powerful being. Don't let anybody diminish you or your thoughts. Take a look at these friendships, and you want to feel an empowering feeling is when you look at that one friend and go, you know what? I'm done. I'm choosing not to have you or your negative vibe around me anymore. So when you get these group of people, they start hanging with these people. They start looking at other people moving up. They look at people moving up and they, they don't like them. And if you talk with successful people, there's people that as you start getting places and doing things, it could be like building a strong marriage, you're doing, your kids are in a good place, uh, it could be a professional upgrade or whatever, and you've got friends that aren't happy about that, and they start talking bad about that, get rid of them. I mean, they, and that happens, it's sad. And so these people, are, these younger kids are not feeling well, they start looking at their friends, wow, they got that degree, they got that job, they just got a new car. I know, I was one of them. I was one of those people that would look at my successful friends and go, you'd look for some negative part in your life to, or some tragedy that happened to them. It's like, good, see what happens when, you, when that happens. When I flipped out of that and got away from that, it, it was empowering to me. And it, it was a, like a yoke, a heavy yoke off my shoulders. It was starting, you know what, I'm going to start celebrating the things in my friends' lives and know that, you know, I can get those things too. They might not be as big as that, but I don't want to do that anymore. And I think that was part of my faith walk too. And it's, that's kind of where I'm trying to get some of my movers and some of the people that will listen to me. Don't be that. Don't look at that. And you have a choice of how you're going to look at your life and look at the opportunities. And you start walking in line with godly principles and pretty soon your walk is lighter. When bad things happen to you, you start thinking, did I bring that on myself? Why is that in my life? And what is there to learn from that? And as you walk through your faith like that, you start looking at these things. And then pretty soon you start realizing, I want these people to feel this way. I'm loved by God. That feels weird when you feel like, I've been hiding from God and, uh, and I'm, I've gotten screwed by God and screwed by these people. All of a sudden you're like, no, God likes a broken guy like me. He actually smiles at me. And I think he smiles more when I start doing other things that aren't all about myself. I think first we fix ourselves, then as we get deeper into our faith, we're going like, oh, I can kind of pass that on. And then you get to a point where, I just got to this recently, it's like, God has shown me great favor. It doesn't mean my life is perfect. It doesn't mean I, I'm not making mistakes. He, he has never expected us to be perfect. If he did, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Or we would graduate to a point where we were a Pharisee that no longer needed Jesus. No, we're never there. But the fact that we are walking in stride, that we are listening to the words of God, we're helping out other people, 
I feel if we could see guardian angels, we'd see some beasts that surround us in our lives to keep us from being totally ripped apart. You know, I just want people to know that, that you have, God has given us free will. You're there in, your, in the place that you are. It could be because of somebody else. It could be because of your attitude. It could be the things in life. And I'm talking with some of the movers that have had it really, really tough. But he also gave us free will to get out of these certain places too. I used this line, I liked it, in, in San Diego on Friday. I go, do you ever live your life like you feel like you're in like first gear and you're pedaling so hard? I go, when you start making the right decisions, it's like you shift a gear and you can breathe. It was wild. When you speak a lot, you can start seeing in people's eyes, they dilate and they have different body language when they get their arms wrapped around an idea. And that's one thing I'm really good at is really bad analogies on trying to get things across. I just, and my employees tell me that. But it was when I told that to these kids, young men, and there's a few young ladies there too, I said, know what it feels like to shift to that second gear when you can go, I'm not talking about not pedaling. You're always pedaling. And they all went, yeah. Like, they wanted that too. Good. I said, well, it's here. But you have to decide to do that. To make the decisions to better yourself. That nobody else can control. And I go, your family's not mean. These people are not caring. They got their own issues in their lives. So they can't help you and spoon feed you all the way. You have to do these things on your own. And I think if we can get to a younger generation, I think all of us can hear that. I heard it later in life. I wish I would have heard it earlier, but it's enough to wrap their arms around that they can understand. And I told these kids too, I go, don't listen to the media about what is successful. These clothes, that you're supposed to wear and this car you're supposed to drive and this life that you're supposed to live and these Michelob beer commercials where they're all, they're all skinny and they're all athletic and they're all sipping beers in their life. That's bullshit. I go, that doesn't exist. It's not true. That is a, it is a mirage that if you ever were able to get to that Michelob light commercial, you would get there and it would, there's no oasis there. You get there and it's empty. And then the next thing is out in front of you. Start winning where you are right now. Start living your life now and let it unfold and, and go where it's supposed to go. But don't take these mental images of what you're supposed to look like. And what a terrific talk by Briggs Sauber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. And by the way, we also did a remarkable hour-long story about that company and the role he and his mom played. His mom, of all people, in building this remarkable company. And again, it's the largest moving franchise with 346 franchises, 7,600 employees, and 3,000 trucks, and a nearly 96% referral rate, which is really remarkable. Briggs Sarber's talk with his movers, we bring it to you. And again, share your stories with us, leadership stories, any other stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our best five stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, we'll send you our best five stories. 
each week. This is Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories. And up next, Greg Hengler has an unlikely World War II story about George McGovern, the liberal anti-war Democratic presidential candidate from South Dakota, who was soundly defeated by President Nixon in the 1972 election. Stephen Ambrose is one of America's leading biographers and historians. Ambrose's works have inspired Americans to regard its war veterans with newfound reverence. His bestsellers chronicle our nation's critical battles and achievements, from his seminal war works D-Day and Band of Brothers, to undaunted courage and nothing like it in the world, the men who built the transcontinental railroad. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories, thanks to the permission from those who run his estate. Here's Stephen Ambrose to tell us a short story from his book, The Wild Blue, The Men and Boys Who Flew the B-24s Over Germany. My next book is a story of the B-24 in the Second World War. And it, it, it's not exclusively about, it's about a squadron and, and then about the bomb group. But one of the members of the squadron was George McGovern, who was a pilot of a B-24, 35 missions, got the Distinguished Flying Cross. Which most people, they, what? Excuse me. He's the most famous anti-bombing, anti-war advocate in the whole world. He flew bombers in the Second World War, and he did. And <laughs> how do you open a story? I open with George. He had come back from a raid over Vienna. He was all shot up with shrapnel and everything, and the plane just barely limping along, and it's a, a good story in itself. And the crew called up to him, Lieutenant, we got a bomb stuck in the bomb bay, half in and half out. Whoa. Well, you can't land a B-24 with a bomb. <laughs> and so they're either going to have to bail out or they're going to have to get rid of that bomb. And George told them, go to work on that bomb so you can get it loose. And they finally called up and they were now over a, a, a part of Western Austria, rural. And they called up, Lieutenant, we got it. We're ready. Drop it, says George. And they were by this time, because they were so badly shot up, down to about 10,000 feet, and it was a clear day, and he could see that bomb going down, he watched and watched and watched, boom, it hit a farmhouse. And George looked at his watch, and he said, oh, shit. I'm a farmer. I come from South Dakota. I know what time farmers eat.
After the bomb fell, McGovern closed the bomb bay doors and headed home. On the intercom, he and Cooper, the navigator, talked. McGovern asked, what's the highest elevation we're going to go past? Cooper looked at his map, did his calculations, and replied, 8,000 feet, George, 8,000 feet. In an interview, Cooper told me, actually, it was only 7,000 feet, but I added another 1,000 feet because I was engaged to get married. <laughs> Cooper grinned and then added, as George was expecting his first child, he added another 1,000 feet on top of that. At Sheragnola, it was an easy landing. No one had been hurt. McGovern jumped into a truck and rode over to the debriefing area where the Red Cross woman gave him coffee and a donut. An intelligence officer came running up to him, the same officer who had handed him a cable back in December that told him his father had had a heart attack and died. And the bomb group commander told George, you can take tomorrow off. And George said, no, I'm not going to take that excuse. I'm here for a job. This time, however, the officer was grinning from ear to ear. As he handed a cable to McGovern, he said, Congratulations, Daddy, you now have a daughter. The cable was from Eleanor. Their first baby, whom she named Anne, had been born on March 10 in the Mitchell Methodist Hospital. Eleanor concluded the cable, Child doing well, love, Eleanor. I was just ecstatic, McGovern said, jubilant. But then he thought, Eleanor and I have brought a new child into the world today, and I probably killed somebody else's kids right at lunchtime. Hell, why did that bomb have to hit there? He went over to the officer's club and had a drink, cheap red wine. He was toasted and cheered. But he later said, it really did make me feel different for the rest of the war. Now I was a father. I had not only a wife back home, but a little girl. All the more reason why I wanted to get home and see that child. He returned to his tent and wrote Eleanor a long letter. He did not mention the farmhouse, but he couldn't get it out of his mind. In an interview last year, he said to me, that thing stayed with me for years and years, decades. If I thought about the war, almost invariably, I would think about that farm. There's been much criticism of the American air effort in the Second World War. People have said, geez, all that production that went into making those bombers, all of the expense of training those pilots and the crews, that would have been better spent on the Army or on the Navy instead of on those big bombers, plus which what they did was just awful. They killed women and children. And they never hit any of their targets, according to the critics. We shouldn't have done it. Well, we don't know. What we do know is the Allies won the war. What McGovern did, what the 741st Squadron did, along with the rest of the 455th Bomb Group and all of the 15th Air Force and the 8th Air Force, most especially in their attacks against oil refineries and marshalling yards, was critical to the victory. They paralyzed the German Army. In April 1944, the Germans were producing oil at a rate of 100%. They had plenty of it. This was down a year later to 1%. Hitler could not get gasoline for his Mercedes. German tanks couldn't move. They became fixed fortifications. The Germans, this is the country of Mercedes. The Germans had no trucks. They had become a horse-drawn army fighting a 20th century war. 
McGovern, his crew, and all the airmen had spent the war years not in vain, but in doing good work. Along with all the peoples of the Allied nations, they saved Western civilization. George Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister of the First World War, was living in London in the Second World War, and he watched these air crews in action, and he had this to say. They were kittens in play, but tigers in battle. In 1985, McGovern was lecturing at the University of Innsbruck. A director of Austria's television, the state-owned station, contacted him to ask him to do a documentary. Uh, to do an interview for a documentary he was producing on Austrian World War II. McGovern reluctantly agreed. It was a woman reporter doing the interview. She said, Senator McGovern, you're known around the world for your opposition to war, but you were a bomber pilot in the Second World War. You hit our beautiful cities, Innsbruck, Vienna. You killed women and children. Don't you regret that? McGovern's answer, well, Nobody thinks that war is a lovely affair. It's humanity at its worst. It's a breakdown of normal communication, and it's a very savage enterprise. But on the other hand, there are issues that sometimes must be decided by warfare after all else fails. I thought Adolf Hitler was a madman who had to be stopped. So my answer to your question is no. I don't regret bombing strategic targets in Austria and her face just dropped. She was terribly disappointed. And George, being George, saw that, and he said, well, there was one bomb that I do regret. <laughs> what was that? McGovern told her about the bomb that had stuck in the Bombay door and had to be jettisoned on March 14, 1945. And what happened? Cut. End of interview. And. The documentary was shown a couple of months later on Austrian TV. And there's a call at the station. It's an old man. He said, I'm a farmer. And that was my farm that he hit. <laughs> it was exactly the way he described it. And I want you to tell Senator McGovern that I saw that bomb come out. And I got my wife and our two little girls and we went into the ditch. And nobody got hurt. And I further want to tell you, to tell Senator McGovern, I don't care what other Austrians say, I hated Hitler. I hated him so much that the instant I saw my little farmhouse and my barn go up, I thought to myself, if this shortens the war by one second, it was worth it. The television station called McGovern and told him what the farmer had said. For McGovern, it was, quote, an enormous release and gratification. It seemed to just wipe clean a slate. Thanks very much. And what great storytelling by one of the great storytellers of all time, particularly all things surrounding World War II. And thanks to the Stephen Ambrose estate for allowing us to use that story, and we'll be using more. And my goodness, the B-24 Liberator, you could just tell a story about that. And, of course, the Higgins boat. Because, my goodness, the people here in this country making these, these planes and these boats and these tanks. So many of them women, by the way, doing that work. It's a story all by itself. And, by the way, 
the fact that we reduced the amount of oil Germany was able to manufacture from 100% to 1% and to cripple the German army. Hitler didn't have gas for his own Mercedes. And you could hear Ambrose say that with pride. The story of George McGovern and, of course, the story of the conscience of a soldier here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And your stories, too, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories about the places you live are some of our favorites. And today we have a story from where we live, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and it's a small town, a small college town, home of Ole Miss, about an hour south of Memphis. Steve Thomas has lived in our town for over 30 years. Today, he's here to share with us his story. Take it away, Faith. Steve Thomas is a magician and balloon-making expert. He goes to the local farmer's market and events here in town to make balloons for people. He's our own personal small-town celebrity. Steve has always loved magic, but his path to full-time magician and balloon artist didn't start until his 40s. Steve has had several jobs throughout his career. He started off in radio, where he worked for over 20 years. After his time in radio came to an end, he went to work for FedEx and became a dangerous goods specialist. He worked at FedEx for 14 years until one day, something happened. Just over a decade ago, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I was at work one night and I picked up a one-pound box and turned around and set it down and my shoulder popped. And that was all she wrote for the shoulder. So I ended up having really extensive four different procedures on my right shoulder. And when I got done with that, I had a little tremor. And the doctor eventually figured out what it was. And, of course, FedEx said, if you can't come back to work at 100%, don't come back at all. There's several different ways um, that you can manifest the condition It's basically your body doesn't produce enough dopamine uh, or produces too much dopamine or your dopamine receptors, the things that take it in after it's produced don't work correctly or the synapses that go from the muscles to the the brain don't work correctly because of the lack of that. So it's just a long process of trying to figure out what medicine to give you, whether you need more dopamine, whether you need the receptors worked on. And now they're talking about brain surgery and, you know, I mean, I have the best brain in the world, but I only get one. And I don't want them to go digging around in there and hook the wrong voltage battery up. It's progressive. But like my doctor said, and I've had three or four doctors because they move off. They're all neuromotor specialists. And they'll tell you Parkinson's doesn't kill you. You don't die from Parkinson's. I mean, you, you may lose the use of an arm or a leg or get tremors. And mine's unilateral. It's in the left side of my brain, which means it affects the right side of my body. Um, About 80% of it's in my arm, 20% in my leg, occasionally a little flutter in my eye. But 
if you meet me and watch me work, chances are if I'm not moving or doing anything, I'll have a hand in my pocket. That's to kind of hide that little tremor thing that goes on. But it gets to a lot of people, you know. Oh, my, my father was diagnosed at one point in his late years with what they thought was Parkinson's. And he cried. You know, I don't see the purpose in crying. It's non-productive. Steve was not always so relaxed in his response to life. I've always, well, I you got to realize when I was a kid, I was a ball of nerves. Um, I had an ulcer when I was like six. Yeah, peptic ulcer just from worrying and stress. I learned early on, worrying doesn't change anything. It's not going to change the outcome of anything. Just do what you're going to do and be who you're going to be. Bleeding ulcer will do that for you. When they start talking about, you got to take this medicine as long as you have it. And I think, you know, that was a long time ago, I'm sure. It may not have even been what, what the doctor said it was. But you, know, you just can't let it get to you. I mean, if you're going to spend your day that would be an otherwise good day worrying about how tomorrow is going to be, then you just screwed up today. I, I guess I can talk about Parkinson's patients because I am one. You know, relax. I mean, I know people who've had Parkinson's two years and they can't get up out of a wheelchair. And I, you know, mine is minimal. My progression is very minimal. Um, if it hadn't been for the results of a DAT scan, I don't think the doctor would even admit that I had it. But it showed up. You know, they inject you with some radioactive stuff and then stick in a CAT scan machine. After he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he left FedEx and returned to something he was familiar with, magic. I have actually been doing magic and entertaining people for 44 years now. And when I was a kid, I did shows. did my first show when I was nine. It was a paid thing. Um, I remember because my, bu- my buddy and I performed together and we told her it was $5. And she gave us each $5. Well, we thought we'd hit a gold mine if you get paid twice as much as you're expecting. So I did that for a while. And then I packed away all the magic when I got into the radio thing because that, you know, I was up at 3 o'clock every morning. And um, after I got married or met my, I was after I met my wife. I was at my father's house and I went in his storage shed and there's all this magic stuff. I thought, well, why don't I start using some of this? So it went from, you know, liquor store cardboard box full of magic stuff to um, I have a thousand square feet in my house now that's nothing but magic. Everything on the walls, you know, everything decorating, all the books, 12 bookcases full of magic books. And somewhere along in there while I was entertaining it, because I did 12 years at Pizza Hut restaurants for kids' night. Um, somewhere in there, I decided to take up balloon art because they wanted something more conducive to littler kids. So I started doing that probably 15, 16 years ago. And you've been listening to Steve Thomas, and he's our local celebrity, the magician, the guy who shows up at the parties, entertains the kids. Everybody knows him in town. Struck with Parkinson, a tough disease. He said, I didn't see the purpose in crying. It's non-productive. And he knew a lot about the kind of person who worries himself to death because he was that person when he was younger. 
When we come back, more of Steve Thomas's story. And again, if you have a Steve Thomas-like story in your neighborhood, and you do, uh, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. These are the kind of stories we bring you each and every day. More of Steve Thomas's life, small-town life here in Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. Return to our American stories and to Steve Thomas's story, our local magician and balloon art expert. Let's return to Faith and continue this story. When Steve was young, he had to read a lot of books in order to learn about magic. He would go to the library and you'd check out whatever magic book you could find and you'd absorb everything in that. And um, after you've covered all the magic books, even back then there wasn't much to do, especially here. Um, there's a magic shop in Memphis. My parents would take me there occasionally, and I would learn a couple things from one of the guys working there and work on those. Now I have kids who come over to my house for magic tutoring and magic lessons. Kind of, I guess what comes around goes around. And I'm glad to see some kids getting into magic. Steve performs for all ages, but he has his favorites. You know, there's nothing better than a birthday party for like a 50-year-old lady and everybody's having a good time and you can just do things because you don't, with people that age, you don't have to worry about comprehension. Whereas if you have a group of 50 kids and there's some three and four and five-year-olds in there, there's a little comprehension issue. You have to keep gear things toward the, the younger audience. And, you know, I do that. Well, I'm, I live just to make kids smile and laugh. Throughout his magic career, Steve's son and daughter have played roles in some of his shows. There are many times he's taken a show on the road, which provided some great quality time for Steve and his son. Everywhere from furthest north I've been is New London, Missouri. Furthest south is New Orleans and any state in between there. Um, I'm getting kind of old and I'm not big on that you know, two weeks away from home thing. But we used to do library shows every summer. We would book two weeks, and every day we would have two shows in two different towns. And my son and I would load up all our stuff, and we'd go out, go to the town, get a hotel room, go set up the stuff at the library, go have dinner, go home, go back to the hotel, go to sleep, get up the next day, do the show, move on to the next town. Some of our best times and some of the uh, most interesting conversations we've ever had. Yeah, because my son could come up with some lines that would crack you up. He's a hilarious human being. Some of our funniest moments were in New Orleans. And one I distinctly remember, he was 11. And I scheduled a meeting with a friend of mine who also does balloons. And he's a clown. And he's goofy. 
So we're in this little hole in the wall, like five table bar, <clears throat> middle of the day. And we start doing balloons. There's a big pile of balloons on the table. And this drunk blonde girl comes up and says, oh, do you two do balloons? And I looked at my friend and he looked at me and we just shook our heads. But uh, so we made some balloons for her and she gave us a bunch of money. And my son's sitting there being real quiet. So she came time to leave for her to leave. And she walked up and she gave us some more money. And she had a basketball pick sheet. And I don't know the first thing about sports. I know football is the one that's pointy on the ends. That's the only thing I know. But she came up and she said, I need somebody to help me with this basketball pick sheet. Can you help me in? My buddy Joe, he didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. I said, here's your man right here. Pointed at my son. He's 11. So he BS'd her along with the best of them. And she gave him some money. And she said, my son's 11. She's college. She said, well, I don't know how I can ever thank you. And he looked her square in the eye and he said, how about you give me your phone number? And I was speechless. And that's very rare for me to be speechless. I said, boy, what did you say? You are 11 years old. He said, can't hurt to ask. After living in Oxford for so many years and doing magic and balloon art for parties throughout that time, Steve is widely recognized. I met Steve at the coffee shop on the square here in town. If you go there often enough, you'll begin to see a lot of the same people. And there are always kids in there, and they're always coming up to the table talking to me, and they're always waving at me from across the room. And I think that's great. I love making friends, and, and I've seen these kids grow up. I get p- parents who come up to me and say, Oh, yeah, you did my birthday party when I was five. This is my little girl. She's seven. We want to see if you can come do her party. So along with making me feel really old, it makes me feel good that they remember who I am and what I do. Some people who are children's entertainers talk about, oh, the kids are so bad. The kids are so bad. What do you do to keep the kids in line while you're doing shows? What are some of your techniques? Well, my technique is I'm six foot three and I weigh 265 pounds. And I've developed this little goatee that has a purpose. Makes you look a little more grown up. Um, I have an earring in each ear, which I guess makes the kids think you're not like a normal, you're not like dad. So... They, they tend to act right. Of course, before our conversation was over, I had to ask Steve to make a balloon for me. He carries balloons with him all the time. And of course I carry balloons with you. Let's, what do we have here? Let's see what happens. Oh, perfect, perfect. And if you ever see me in the coffee shop, whip out a bag of balloons, I'm trying to cheer up a kid who looks like he's having a bad day. And that's another thing that most people don't realize is people see me do balloons and I mouth inflate. Um, most people don't because it takes a lot of lung power to blow up one of these balloons. And I have uh, apnea, so I sleep with a breathing machine every night. Well, in one of my pulmonologist meetings or appointments, I asked, I told the doctor what I do, and he's like, well, let's test you out. So he tested out my lung capacity, and I have almost double the lung capacity and lung strength from doing this. So you take the green one, and you twist it, and you twist it, and you twist it. I could give you a ballooning lesson. 
Next time I see you in the coffee shop, I'll bring out a bag of balloons. It looks less creepy if somebody's sitting there with you doing it. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are fantastic with balloons. I have friends all over the world who can make life-size motorcycles. And, well, that's great, but that takes like three days. Um, I would rather make something quick and easy. And I think my entertainment value comes more in the interaction between me and the child or the parents than it does the fact that your balloon looks exactly like, you know, Ronald Reagan or whoever, whatever you're trying to make. Then you take the heart, stretch the heart, tweak the heart. And people watch me do balloons a lot of times. They'll, they'll all carry on a conversation the same time I'm doing it. You're not, you're not even watching what you're doing. Anything I make, I can make behind my back or without looking at what I'm doing. Ta-da! And this goes on your arm. I'll save it for you. I won't walk out with it. And, you know, that will put a smile on a teacher's face, a child's face, a mom's face. doesn't matter, an 80-year-old lady. I think it's that you can be creative with them. But, you know, if you give a just a round balloon, and I don't recommend doing this because even I have my limitations. Uh, I won't do a balloon for anybody under four because of the whole choking hazard. Um, if I know the child and I know that they're not going to, they're smart enough to not be sticking their fist in their mouth, I'll do a balloon for them. But if you give like a five-year-old a round balloon, just a round balloon with no picture on it or anything, they'll play with it until it pops. They'll play with it for hours. And I don't know what it is. Just, what do they say? It's a, uh, it's a gift. It's a bag of my breath. That's our local magician and balloon art expert, Steve Thomas. And I'm Faith Buchanan for Our American Stories. It's just a bag of my breath. Uh, it's much more than that. Any of us could try this. I've tried a hundred times. In fact, this year, I now have a new New Year's resolution. It's to get Steve Thomas to teach me how to do balloons. I live just to make kids smile and laugh, he said. And I try to cheer up a kid who's having a bad day. Uh, a great story about a guy who deals with, well, a really tough and slow and debilitating disease called Parkinson is by ignoring it and just going on about his day cheerfully making other people's days happier. Steve Thomas's story, a beautiful story from our small town here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, a beautiful, a fantastic place to raise a family and to enjoy sports and all the things that matter in life and that are beautiful in life. And if you have a story about your town, big city, small town, something in between, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Steve Thomas's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories of all kinds. 
and particularly the kinds that reveal character, and in this instance, perseverance. Today, we bring you the story of a man who dreamed of being in Major League Baseball, but not on the playing field. Here to tell his story is Joe Klimchak. The love for baseball came from attending my first Pirates game when I was seven. My dad took me to my first game at Three River Stadium. It was love at first sight. It really was. I walked in and, and it was everything about the ballpark. It was, it was the bright green turf. It was the lights. It was the sound of the organ. It was the smells of you know, nachos and, and, and popcorn and, 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 and cotton candy and peanuts. And, and you, know, you were allowed to smoke then. So it was actually the smell of cigars I liked. And then beer all mixed up into one. So that was great. It was the big jumbotron in center field. It was sensory overload. It was just amazing. Sometimes it just clicks. Sometimes you're just like, this, this space makes me really happy. And I thought, this, is, this atmosphere is just amazing. Everybody's happy here. You know, even when the Pirates are, are, are losing, you know, and, and, and there were years that they, we, we, we lost more than we won, but there were obviously championship years too. But in the mid-70s, we were good. We were called the Lumber Company. I have my program from my first game. And then, of course, and then and the big thing for me was this voice then that came over the PA system that was rich and deep and beautiful. And I thought, wow, I heard that voice. And I said, I said that's it. Somehow, some way, that's the job I want. I somehow have to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. At the age of seven, I knew exactly what I wanted to do because I thought, that, this is definitely the place and that's definitely the job I want to do. His name was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. He was a PA announcer for um, almost 50 years. It was like the tones of the Stradivarius is the way his voice has been uh, described. It, it was just so beautiful and, and I made that connection. And my dad would say that when we went to games after that, I would spend as much time in my seat twisted around watching Art on the fourth level make the announcements or watching the radio and TV guys on the third level and I was just I was locked into the announcer. First steps it was researching these guys and reading about them. My first book was Voices of the Game and I read about all the that was more about not public address but the radio announcers, the Harry Carries, the Harry Callises, the Vin Scullies. And then it was really just watching these announcers on TV, doing games, sportscasters, game show hosts. I was a big Richard Dawson fan, Bob Barker fan, Alex Trebek fan. It was more about uh, the show and less about the game. It was like it was like what they did. It was their nods. It was their winks. It was their gestures. I was just absorbing all of that. The evening news, the network news, would be Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, watching them. The little how, their voice inflection. I just study that constantly, and it would memorize their scripts. I would rehash them. I remember being in our house, and actually my two younger sisters. What a blessing it was that they would actually play along with me for at least five minutes, I believe. I was in my bedroom, they were in theirs, and I would actually do a little radio show through the heating vent of my bedroom. Just kind of say, okay, you guys, you guys sit here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple announcements, read a couple of news stories, give you the scores from last night. And I had to work extra hard because I attended Center School District in, in Beaver County in Aliquippa. And in my class of 186 students, there was only one that needed remedial speech training, and that one was me. And my mom actually saved that intermediate unit form, and I have it, um, from 1979. I was 10 years old, and I had, uh, I had a bad lisp, couldn't say my S's clearly, and it actually says reason for assignment on the sheet, poor articulation. I, I just generally garbled my words. so. Um, not a good start for a guy who wants to be a Major League Baseball announcer. So I had to work extra hard. The lisp thing just was terrible for me. It, it took me so many, so many 
uh, practice sessions, and I still didn't get. I was, I was, uh, I remember I was in this uh, session with another girl who was in another grade. She wasn't in my grade. She was actually a little younger than me, but she got it right away. And I was like, I just couldn't do it. For me to make an S sound, I actually had to bite down, and my S's were, which is still kind of sloppy. But that was the best I could do until it finally clicked, like a year later. Constant repetition, constant studying and answers memorizing scripts, rehashing scripts. Art McKinnon had a drill that he would actually, he's a longtime PA announcer, he had a drill where he would read through magazine articles and if he skipped a line or had a hiccup or, or messed up, he would have to go back to the beginning and start again. I would read every article in my Sports Illustrated magazines and when I read through all those I grabbed my mom's Woman's Days and Family Circles and I read all those out loud. So again, I just wanted to get as much repetition as I could because somehow, someway, you know, I wanted to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. So I, I, I'm at Grove City College and majoring in communications. I'm on the radio station staff, and I, I kind of carried that passion for announcing to college because I wanted to get as much experience now that I could there. And with the radio station, I became the sports director, the news director. I hosted a morning show. Um, they had a production studio there. I was always doing announcing in that station. Spent most of my time there. Most of my time was spent there. Um, I was also the public address announcer for all the sports, not just football and basketball, but the Olympic sports too. I did PA for soccer, for volleyball, for swimming, for baseball, um, and gathering all the communications, announcing experience I could. That's why for me, Grove City College was a perfect fit because I was hands-on. I was able to do that from a fresh, from my freshman year for four years to do all that announcing. I collected all this great, great experience, and and it was because of that that I was actually I, when I was a sophomore, I said, okay. Now with some real experience now, now I think it's time to let the Pirates know that I'm interested in, in, in working for them because I know in a couple of years it'll be time to graduate and, and I would love to roll right into a big league announcing job, but those jobs don't come open very often. So I remember writing them a letter and at this time now, uh, Art McKinnon, the longtime PA announcer who I heard at the age of seven, he was the backup public address announcer now. He was the backup because he was too old. He was in his 80s. Tim DeBacco was the regular announcer. Art was doing the game on, games on Sundays. Tim was doing uh, every other game. But I decided to write a letter to the Pirates and say, Pirates, dear Pirates, my name's Joe. I've collected all this announcing experience. I know you have a regular public address announcer and a backup public address announcer, but I really think, I really, really think you need a backup to the backup public address announcer. That's what you need because just in the, in the event that Tim and Art can't work a game, you need somebody reliable to fall back on. And I'm your man because I've been listening to these guys for years, memorizing their scripts inside and out. Would you please hire me? or at least give me a listen, or keep me on the list. So a couple weeks later, they wrote me back. It was like, no, we thank you for your interest, but we uh, have two announcers already. We don't need a backup to the backup announcer. And I remember the last line actually saved the rejection letter. It said, best of luck in your efforts to work in baseball. And I was like, ah. Oh. For me, that sounded like a crushing line, because all, all my life, all I wanted to do was work for the Pirates. It almost sounded like, uh, no thanks, and, and, and good luck try somewhere else. We don't have any interest in, in you. But of course, I was uh, obsessed with getting this job, so I wrote them another letter. I said, no, you really need to hire me. You really, really, I, I detailed all my experience. I went into more detail, and they sent me another rejection letter saying, no, we really, we really thank you. Best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. So I was crushed. Two rejection letters now. But I was going to be persistent. I was going to keep trying. I was going to keep going after this. So what I decided to do is actually write a letter to Art McKinnon himself. I wrote to the 85-year-old backup public address announcer, longtime PA legend announcer, Art McKinnon. And I said, Art, I really appreciate what you do. You're, you're, you're amazing. You inspired me to do, to do this. I heard your voice at the age of seven, and I said, that's the job I want. 
Um, is there any chance that you can work me somehow into the organization? I've tried through the pirates. They've sent me some rejection letters. I would love to get on a list of announcers, or if you can give me any guidance, any, any help whatsoever, I'd appreciate it. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this remarkable story of perseverance. We learn early that he didn't have the talent for this, certainly not naturally. He had a lisp. And if you've ever seen the movie The Natural, and again, he's not a natural. And the movie The Natural, a great baseball movie with Robert Duvall and with uh, Robert Redford, Bernard Malamud's classic novel. It was all about a guy who had everything come easy to him and how he squandered it through a, a couple of mistakes. This guy... Boy, he had to stick at it and stick at it and stick at it. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story of perseverance and persistence, overcoming objections and rejection. If you've got a story like this in your family, in your community, and that's one of a character and overcoming obstacles, of overcoming objections and setbacks, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We continue with Joe Klimchak's story, a great Pittsburgh story, a great baseball story, after these commercial messages. back with the rest of Joe Klimchak's story here on Our American Stories. At the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a big league announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, not just any announcer anywhere, for the Pirates. When we last left off, he'd written a letter to the man who inspired his dream, longtime Pittsburgh Pirates announcer Art McKinnon. He was awaiting a response. Let's get back to Joe. I'm now working at Grove City College. I've graduated and, and the, the college, uh, it was a real blessing. They hired me to work as their sports information director. Met my wife of now 27 years, Jennifer, at the college. And uh, we were going back to my apartment uh, one night. And uh, this is back in the days of answering machines that flashed when there was a message. So there was a big red one, hit play. And I can remember like it was yesterday. Joe, this is Art McKinnon. I have your letter here, your very nice letter. I'm under the weather, but I promise to write you back. Goodbye, Joe. I remember I cried when I heard that. I was like, oh my goodness, Art McKinnon has called me, Joey Klimchak, up here in Grove City, Pennsylvania, uh, and he's going to write me back. And I, I remember turning to Jen, I said, that's the crack in the door I needed. Somehow, some way, one day I'm going to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. It's going to happen. Art did write me back. He was true to his word. He wrote me back. Actually, he didn't write me back. He typed me back. It was this typewritten letter that I actually have hanging on my wall right now. And he essentially, the letter said, Appreciate your kind comments, and uh, you feel you, you appear very qualified to do public address. But uh, my connections aren't what they once used to be, and I really can't help you. Um, but don't pass up on any bets. Work hard, and, and, and essentially saying, not in so many words, 
best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. That's kind of, I, I felt like it was, it was the same thing from Artie would say, I can't help you, but, but thanks for writing and, and good luck. And I was like, ah. Oh. Again, I, I felt a little crushed again, but uh, was not going to be deterred. Kept pushing. I wrote Art back again, and I said, Art, thank you so much for the letter. And I'm not a pushy guy, but I got a little pushy with Art in a way. I said, Art, is there any way that I can actually watch you do public address for an inning during a Sunday game? I actually picked out the game. September 20th, Pirates against the Phillies, 1992. Can I show up at the ballpark and watch you do public address? Didn't know what he would say. He wrote me back. Received your letter. Don't buy tickets. Report to press gate A, and I'll see you on September 20th. I was like, wow, this is great. So Jennifer and I show up that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember Mickey Morandini, the Phillies, turned a triple play that day. I remember everything about that day. And it was only for six outs, but it was amazing. I felt like it was, you know, just, it was out of body. I was on cloud nine. But those six outs came and went. He turned around. He shook my hand. He said, thank you. Walked me out the door. And, and then Tim Tobacco, who's the regular announcer, he was there, shook his hand. He said, nice to meet you. And he said, good luck. And next thing you know, I'm out in section 600 whatever, sitting there with Jennifer saying, well, okay, that was great and all, but I made some good contacts, I suppose, but I'm really not there. I haven't got my big break yet. yet. I, I, I was still waiting. I have not gotten my big break yet. So I was still a little frustrated. But my big break did finally come months later. I'm working at Grove City College, sports information director. It's lunch break, and I was going to head down to get a sandwich on Main Street. And I turn on an AM radio station, a small Mercer County radio station, WPIC, and the announcer is Dave Hanahan, and he comes on the air, and why he read this announcement, I have no idea. This is Mercer County. This is like 60, 70 miles north of Pittsburgh. But he read this. He said that the Pirates have decided to this upcoming season, have high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. And the first one was going to be, I believe it was like May 16th. I remember the two teams. It was going to be Greater Latrobe against Derry. And I heard that, and instantly I was like, oh my goodness, light bulb went off. I'm not going to get a sandwich today. I'm going to double back to my office. This was before cell phones. So I got to my office phone, called the Pirates, obviously thinking like they needed an announcer for these games. So it took a long time to find the person in charge. Finally, they got on the line. They said, we actually hadn't even considered having an announcer for those games. Since you're interested, sure, we'll, we'll listen to a tape. Got to the production studio. Of course, I, I'd memorized the scripts inside and out, knew all the formatics and everything, the pauses, the inflections. The lady's name was Jackie. She called me back the next day. She said, Joe, we heard your tape. And if you're willing to work for free, congratulations. You are the announcer of our high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. I was like, wow, that's great. I'll see you there on May 16th. I'll show up. I can't wait to do this. Um, so that was a big break for me. That, that was huge. I mean, uh, you know, I would have done anything for free. I would have swept the floors for free. But the chance to announce in the big league ballpark, that was, that was amazing. I'm in the same booth, not just in the booth now, but I'm at Art McKinnon's microphone. That was crazy. Announcing in this stadium with 60,000 seats, never mind that only 60 of them were full for my games. But it was still a great experience. I did that for, uh, for a year. Months later, the Pirates give me a call, and they let me know that the Pirates are going to be soon having an audition for the backup public address announcer position. Art McKinnon is now too old to be the backup PA announcer. So they asked me if I'd be interested in showing up. They knew that I'd written those letters years ago. They knew that I was a high school announcer. They expected that I would be interested in it, and obviously I was. They said, sure, I'd love I'd loved that. So I showed up uh, for this audition, hoping it'd just be me and a couple other people, but it was me and eight other people.
and they were all people from the Pittsburgh media. And I was like, oh no. So on paper, I really had no chance at winning this audition. I was a kid just a couple years out of college. These were all seasoned professionals. They probably actually handpicked these people to come in. These are guys I've been, and, and actually there was one lady too that I've been listening to and watching for years. So we're all assembled, nine people auditioning to become the backup public address announcer for the Pirates. They take us up to the booth one by one. Got to be my turn. And uh, they said, okay, Joe, here, here's your first announcement. It's, it's the crowd control announcement. And I actually said, I, I don't need this script. I've, I actually, I know that one by heart. So I opened up the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, we remind you, please do not go onto the field or in any way interfere with baseball still in play or throw objects of any kind. So I knew that one by heart. Did it. It went well. I actually knew that one backward. I knew that one backward. Play and still baseballs with interfere, weigh any in or feel the two on go, not do please, you remind we, gentlemen and ladies. It was crazy. Like when you, when you want something that bad, you get a little freakish about it. And I was freakish about getting this job. This is a week after the audition. And my director came over and said, Joe, congratulations. You won the audition. You're now the backup public address announcer of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was huge. I, I was excited. I was like, wow, okay, I, I finally did it. Um, but I'm just the backup. And the, when you're the backup, you don't get many games. So I got my first game. They actually gave me my first game. Usually I would, I would only get a game when Tim can't make the game. He'd have to be sick or have some kind of family emergency. But they gave me my first game, May 26, 1994. Again, remember, like it was yesterday, it was a 13-inning game. Pirates won 11-10 over the Mets. And it was, it was just, it was just, ah, it was a dream come true for me. The next season I worked three games. But after seven seasons as the backup public address announcer, I'd only done seven games. It's the late 90s now, and they were rolling over 2000, and they're building PNC Park. And they opened it up in 2001, and I went to my director and I said, Eric, I'm obviously as the backup PA announcer, not working many games. Is there any chance there might be a new job in the scoreboard department that I could do to work more games? There was a Pepsi bottle that sat over the Clemente wall when they opened up PNC Park. And when the Pirates hit a home run, smoke came out of the Pepsi bottle. It was my job when the Pirates hit a home run to hit the button that made the smoke come out of the Pepsi bottle for 81 home dates a year in 2001, 2, 3, 4. So 2005 rolls around. And what we do before every season is we have a rehearsal at the ballpark before opening day. It's an empty ballpark. It's late March. I'm in my Pepsi smoke chair. We're going to play a simulated game up on the video board. And if the Pirates hit a home run, y'all hit the button. But otherwise, I have nothing to do. I'm going through the pregame script. And I see there's a little line that says Radio MC. That means that somebody from the Pittsburgh media comes to the ballpark. And they stand on the field and address the crowd and say, like they say their name, the station they're from, when their shift is. And I said, OK, it's snowing. It's late March. It's an empty ballpark. Nobody's showing up for this position. I went to my director. I said, Eric. Since I have nothing to do in the pregame, can I go down? Can I be the radio MC today? And he looked at me and he said, you want to do that? I said, I said, I'd love to. He said, grab a microphone. Grabbed the microphone, went down to the field, found the camera guy. And at 6.42, they cued me. And I'm a big preparation guy, but I really hadn't prepared for this. All my announcing really had been uh, not on screen. This was the first thing on the video board. So I got a camera. I didn't even know where to look, but I assumed look into the camera. And it went well. And after that rehearsal, my director tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, Joe, we watched you there and we thought it looked really good. And we would like you to actually, if you're interested, host one of the games we play between innings on the video board. At the end of the fourth inning, you'll leave your Pepsi smoke guy position. You'll go down to the Riverwalk. And for, for that half inning, you'll play a game with a fan and then come back to the scoreboard room. I said, that'd be great. So now I'm actually announcing it all 81 games, one break. The next year it turned into two breaks, and then a couple years later, and now I'm doing like five inning breaks. The next year I'm doing all of pregame, and, and now I sit here 15 years later, 
I've been the in-game host of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I have about nine in-game breaks, all of pregame. I don't take a single day for granted. And this is 15 years later, and I'm just as excited 15 years later as I was the first day I did this job. When I walk onto the field, and the first thing I actually do, I walk onto the field, I look over my left shoulder. I do this every game to remind myself. At the top of the video board, it says, Home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's just a reminder. I'm like, it still hits me like, wow. I don't look at myself as as an announcer as much as I do, I'm more like a fan with a microphone. I want that to be my persona here. But you know, I, 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 I treat every day like it's opening day because I feel like it's opening day. I'm that excited. And what a story, Joe Klimchak's story. And it wouldn't have happened if his dad hadn't taken him to a ballpark. So you dads out there who think you're not making a difference spending time with your kids. Well, here's a classic story. And he remembers the smells. He remembers the sights. He remembers feeling this bliss. And he's not rejected once, folks, or twice or three times. By the way, he'll take any job and work for free. Remember, he's given that job for free. And he says, I would have cleaned the place for free. And he just kept at it. And he just kept showing up and asking for more. And it's everything we need to learn about how how to succeed and thrive and prosper in life is to show up and serve. Joe Klimchak's story. A great story, and thanks to Robbie Davis for doing such a great job on this piece. Robbie spent a good part of his life in college, at Grove City College, no less. And so he knows a lot about the folks and the life of Pittsburgh and the role sports play in that great town. Joe Klimchak's story, here on Our American Story. 